there's a very good chance that, um, <clears throat> like my house, your life is under construction. We've been preparing our house to receive my mother-in-law for some time. She moved in with us in November. We bought our house here in Guelph when we took this church. It took us a while to find a house. It's a hard city to buy a house in. Once we found it, though, Grandmama, as we call her, Julie, my mother-in-law, my wife's mom, moved in with us in November in preparation for the finishing of her nanny suite. So her nanny suite will be finished, Lord willing. She moves in on May 9th. And so we've had our house under construction for November, December, January, February, March, six months, and it is getting a little long in the tooth. Those of you who have ever lived through renovation know that it's not the most fun thing you could do. I have a little um, song that I sing when it gets me down. It goes like this. I hate renovate, and I just kind of sing it over and over. I hate renovate. What's nice about this is I'm not doing it myself. We've hired a company, and that's really fun, but I've noticed that whether the dust is being created by a rank amateur such, of my, uh, such as myself or by a certified professional, dust is still dust, and it is everywhere. I mean, it is lit, it's, it's in my ears. Like, there are days when I do this, and I'm like, ah, more drywall dust, and then I dust my ears, and it just comes back. There's dust everywhere. The garden is destroyed. They've wrecked my driveway. It's just awesome. In fact, my driveway is so bad that on Friday, after I finished my sermon and opened the swimming pool, I had a, an hour and a half left before my wife came home, and I thought, I'm going to clean this driveway. And it took every ounce of energy I had for an hour and a half to cleanse that driveway. And even when I finished, it still looked bad because it is under construction. There's stuff everywhere. There's cracks from the dump trucks. I mean, if you come to our house right now, we're apologizing. So sorry about our mess. Someday it's going to be nice. My house is under construction, and maybe your life feels that way. And the thing that's difficult about being under construction is that we feel like it's never going to end. And that's difficult for us as humans because we're finish line obsessed. Can you relate? We're obsessed with the finish line. I'm training right now for this summer's triathlon, so I will do my third Olympic distance triathlon this summer, and I live in constant fear. In fact, I know exactly, because I've done it three times, this is my seventh triathlon, but only the third time I do an Olympic distance, I know that by the time I get to within half a kilometer of the finish line, I will literally be almost on the doorstep of meeting Jesus. It is so hard, it's just awful. But I've trained myself to accelerate over the last 500 meters. So I was swimming, I think I ran 5K on Wednesday, and so I've trained myself, I count, I was running at the Y because it was cold, so I know by count how close I am to the end, and so the last 500 meters I just accelerate and I run as hard as I can, but now that I'm 44 I'm actually worried that I might drop dead. It's that hard, but I want to get to the finish line. The thing with a triathlon is once you get to the finish line there's almost no joy. You're just so glad that it's over. At least if you're me there's no joy. Right? We're finish line obsessed. I just want it to be over. I want to get to the end. We're obsessed with the finish line. But this is a, tro- a problem because it's possible, at least if the Bible is true, that under construction is how we were meant to live all along. Seems to me that's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10 through 10 is suggesting. We have it for you on screen. Take a look. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, But in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a beautiful passage, six verses, full of a picture of how life is meant to be. There's, well, I've listed five, but as you'll see in a few moments, point number five could technically be points five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. But we see here some pictures of how life is meant to be. And this would have been of great encouragement to the original audience. Peter was writing to a group of Christians whose allegiance to Jesus was beginning to drive them away from familiarity with the world around them. You might be able to identify with this. The longer you walk with Jesus, the closer you follow him, the more disconnected you find yourself from the way everyone else is doing life. This is how Peter's original audience were feeling. They had been pagan Gentiles for generations, and their newfound allegiance to Jesus was causing them to stand out sorely from their friends, neighbors, and associates. And so Peter's writing to them in this very vulnerable time to encourage them to hold fast to their allegiance to Jesus, even though their allegiance to Jesus is making them feel like they no longer fit in. They might have been asking themselves, is this really how my life is meant to be because no one else is living this way? Into that tension, Peter writes these words and gives them a picture of life as it's meant to be. The first thing that life is meant to be is a Jesus word journey. Jesus, W-A-R-D, with a hyphen, a Jesus word journey. Your life is meant to be taking you towards Jesus. How do I know this? Look at verse 4. As you come to him. Sometimes in the Greek, the word is different than it is in the English. Not this time. As means as. As you come to him, and it's a continuous process, as you are coming to him. Okay? Following Jesus is a process, it's a journey, not a destination. Okay? As you come, you are coming to Jesus. As you come to him, you need to remember that life with Jesus is a journey. You need to remember to live like a tourist. And how many of you know it's difficult to live like a tourist? Why? Because you never feel like you belong. You go on vacation, then you come home. Isn't it nice to come home? Isn't it interesting that you have the nicest bed in all the world? Right? You have the best bed there is, period. It's nice to come home. So if we're to follow Peter's hint here and live like a tourist, if we're to live like we don't really belong here, in fact, I'll go into that in depth next week when I preach about what it means to be a stranger and a sojourner, it's hard to live that way and we must acknowledge it. Because you will always feel to some degree like you're just passing through. I'm just a tourist. We watched a documentary last night about two young kids from Germany who were trying to discover happiness by buying a school bus, retrofitting it, and driving it across North America. And it was kind of fun, boring in parts, but interesting in others. And what was interesting about it to me was that at the end they found happiness, if you will, when they sold the bus and returned home to Germany to their families. So where's my home? Where do I belong? The answer to that is found in Scripture. You belong with Him. As you come to Him, friends, Jesus is your home. Jesus is your destination. 
you're going somewhere, you're going to Jesus. Jesus is your somewhere. Verse 4, as you come to Him, Jesus is your destination. There's a reminder here for us to do whatever it takes to keep Jesus as the trajectory of our life. The trajectory is like the trajectory of a rocket. Once you set it, it just goes. Unless, you know, something catastrophic happens and it explodes in mid-flight. Once the trajectory is set, it's set. You need to keep Jesus as the trajectory of your life. What's comforting about that is you may stumble, you may pause, you may take a step to the right, maybe two steps to the right, but you have Jesus as your trajectory, so you remember, oh yeah, and you take two steps back to the left, you're like, okay, I'm good. Right? You might sit down for a minute, something bad might happen to you, you might you know, take a beating, you know, life just goes ugly for a second, and it's all you can do to just sit still and breathe. Okay, once you get through that moment, that's my trajectory. You'll know in which direction to take the next step when you keep Jesus, when you hold Jesus as the trajectory of your life. You need to hold him in that place. Think of him as your North Star. And keep believing the impossible even when nobody else does. Look at verse 4. As you come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It's beautiful. Jesus is the living stone. What do we all know about living stones? They don't exist. There's a stone. You could call it a foundation stone. It's from the foundation of my house. Sutcliffe dug it out of the ground and put it in a massive, ugly pile of stones that's sitting next to my swimming pool. What do we know about stones? They're not alive. I wanted to bring it because I wanted us to like stare at it for a minute so we could all agree that stones don't live. Still not talking. Right? Living stone, it's an impossibility. Jesus is the impossible. I love it. He's the living stone. He is the great anachronism at the heart of the universe. It's beautiful. You see, the claims of Jesus are impossible and ridiculous unless... God is alive and the gospel is true. Okay, this is so encouraging. You're either completely nuts or totally right. Hopefully you can enjoy living in that tension. Isn't that awkward and uncomfortable? You're like, is there a middle way? Not really. Well, why is that? Well, because the story of Jesus is just plain crazy. That God exists is bad enough that he made everything that is also crazy, including you and me. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, placed in a garden. You lost me right there. This is just metaphor. This is myth. Right? I, I didn't get past the first proposition. God exists. Really? Can we, can we talk about that for a minute? Right? It's a very crazy story. In that garden, there's a tree they're told not to eat of. They eat of it anyway. As a result of their disobedience, they fall into sin and curse and death, and God banishes them from his side. A talking snake tempts Eve to eat the fruit in the first place, and her husband Adam is right next to her, we find out later, but says nothing. It's just crazy. And in their sin and twistedness, they like start killing each other within the first generation, Cain and Abel. Maybe you heard the story. And from there, worse gets worse, and worse gets worse, until eventually, <clears throat> in the story of the flood, God wipes out the world. Because people are so sick and twisted. He saves a remnant. One dude and his family. That's it. 
And after Noah and his family repopulate the earth, guess what? It continues to get uglier and uglier. It gets so bad, in fact, that God just calls one people to himself as his own special people through whom he will reveal his nature to the world. And even his own special people that he chose. Okay, from amongst all the peoples of the world, even his own special people are ridiculous. There's one story, in fact, where their great leader goes up to the mountain to receive the law from God himself. And the whole mountain is wreathed in smoke and fire and flame. It's pretty obvious that God is on the mountain because they don't own pyrotechnics in those days. Like, nobody's faking this. And he happens to be up there too long. So long, in fact, that they lose hope. And they're like, despite this supernatural storm, I think God has abandoned us. Quickly, Aaron, would you make us an idol that we might worship it? It's ridiculous. And that story leads to story after story after story of we ridiculous people doing everything we can to ruin the world God has given us and destroy our place in its order. But God doesn't leave us alone. In the fullness of time, as the Bible says, he sends his son. Yes, we believe God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I told you it was ridiculous. And he sends his son into space-time history. And God the Son actually becomes a man, known to the world as Jesus Christ. And this man is not just a good man, not just a rabbi, not just a philosopher, not just a radical. He is God-made flesh. Literally God in a body, walking around on the earth. And he reaches out to the outcast and to the oppressed. He welcomes the men, he heals the sick, and he tells everyone that the kingdom of God has come near in him. In fact, he goes so far so as to say that who has seen him has seen the Father. He makes himself equal with God the Father, and that's why the religious elite kill him. Because in Judaism, to say that is blasphemy. So they hang him on a cross, and the Romans crucify him. But as he's hanging on that cross, he's not just being crucified. For God the Father has purpose to lay on him the sins of the world. Every evil and ugly thing that's ever been done or will be done is laid on him in that moment. And God the Son made flesh suffers and dies in our place for our sin. In the great exchange, as C.S. Lewis puts it, your badness goes to Jesus and Jesus' goodness comes to you. And the word of God made flesh dies, but he doesn't stay dead. On the first Sunday morning thereafter, Easter Sunday morning, he rises again from death, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And then, after hanging out with his friends for a little while, he ascends to the Father's right hand, right in front of their eyes. Imagine that. He ascends in front of their eyes, and then they can't see him anymore, and they're told later that he sat down at the Father's right hand, and he's interceding for them, meaning he's their cheering section. They're also told that he's going to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which they and we, by extension, have a place. Thank you, Dave. Okay, it's a crazy, ridiculous story unless it's not. A friend of mine put it this way. He said, I basically tell a crazy, ridiculous story that works because it's true. Number two thing that your life is meant to be is supernaturally powered. The gospel is not just an idea. The gospel is true. The gospel is not just a story. The gospel is reality. And every Christian who ever followed Jesus is evidence. You are the impossible made possible because of Jesus' power at work in you. You're like, well, uh... I haven't leapt any buildings in a single bound last time I checked. 
but have you been kind? Where's the room for kindness in a godless world? Where's the room for kindness in Darwinian natural selection? Have you been kind, though? Despite the odds, despite the harshness of the world around you, have you been kind? How about love? Have you ever shown unconditional love to anyone? Or has anyone ever shown it to you? What about joy? Have you ever found joy in the midst of an impossible situation? Have you ever had that moment where in the midst of sorrow, you experience joy? Maybe show me your hand if you've experienced that one. Let me see. Hold up high. Don't be shy. Okay? Testify. This happened to me this week on Wednesday. I'm driving my car. Tough day. Bad day. Out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit of God shows up in my car and fills my heart with joy for no reason. Note, the circumstances of my life had not changed. I didn't ask for it. But like a sweet spring wind, the Holy Spirit just appeared in my car and I was filled with joy. So much so that I ran home and told Nikki. In fact, I think I texted her. I said, I just had a moment of perfect happiness for no reason. How about peace? You ever found yourself able to access peace in the midst of turmoil or patience even though you're mad as hell? I can actually say that. It's in the Bible. Ever felt that way? What about kindness? You ever been able to be kind even though you want to be mean or good even though you want to be bad? For those of you who have been married for more than six minutes, have you ever been able to be faithful? Look at that. 21, 21 years will give you such a crick in the neck. Oi! <laughs> Aladdin, do I look different to you? <laughs> Love that movie. Faithfulness. It's not in style. It's not even that common. But some people are able to be faithful despite the odds. What about gentleness? You ever shown gentleness to somebody for no reason? You think, you're not very gentle, Todd. You should see me with my kids. You should see me with my sick friends. My friends almost died two years ago. I went to see them every day in the hospital, every single day. And I read them a book and prayed with them every single day until he got better. Self-control. I did not eat the entire banana cake last night. (laughs) These things are impossible without God's help in a fallen world. Am I right or am I right? With Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it's possible. You're meant to live a supernaturally charged life. And, number three, that life is meant to be a work in progress. Look at verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Love this. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Being built up is what your life should look like. You're literally meant to be a work in progress. This is very convicting for people like my wife who always want everything to be finished. 
And I can say it because she's my best friend. And she'll only be slightly angry at me afterwards. Okay? The Bible says that you are present continuous being built up. You're a constant work in progress. Built up into what? A spiritual house. You're literally under renovation. We should all get t-shirts, maybe we'll make them for you, that say renovatio on it. Under, don't you need that sign? Like, please forgive our mess while we renovate. We're committed to giving you a better customer experience sometime in the future. Right when I awaken in Jesus' likeness. And I know I'm fully, even as I'm fully known. You ever deal with a frustrating person who's just never nice enough? Join the club. Cut him some slack, man. Because we're all under renovation. You're being literally built up into a spiritual house to be something. What is your identity? To be a holy priesthood. This was the best day of my life this week. Do you know I've been preaching the gospel since I was 19? And I had never studied this word to the point where I realized what priestly meant. It's kind of stupid considering it's my job. Do you know what it means to be a priest? The literal definition of the word priestly is sacred effect. This is what it means to be a priest. It means to be a sacred effect. Literally in Jesus, you holyize the world around you. Now, keep it a small h, just so we keep our theology straight. Right? We know our holiness is rooted and grounded in Christ's holiness, but we know that we are in him and he is in us. Therefore, if he is holy and we are his partners on his mission, and to add insult to injury, Peter himself uses a word that says sacred effect, it is not a stretch to say that we, in partnership with Jesus, holyize the world. So everything you do needs to be understood as part of that sacred effect. Which means if you go to work tomorrow to roof a house, you roof that house to God's glory as a priest. Okay? Dr. Matt goes to save someone's life this morning, gets a text at 5 a.m., you need to come into the operating room. But I have to lead worship today. We don't care, she's bleeding out. So it's great to be a surgeon, and it's great to to save someone's life. But how much better to be a surgeon who saves someone's life and does it to the glory of God, functioning like a priest? Think it would make you a better surgeon if you saw yourself as a sacred effect? How would that play in Sue Bitten's leadership world? If the people she trains came to see themselves as having a, not just having a sacred effect, but being a sacred effect in the world around them. It's powerful. That's who you are. Redeem your work. Be who you are, a priest. And do what you've been made to do, and that is worship Jesus, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Literally, you exist to worship Jesus. More on worship in just a moment. And you can do all this, be built up into a spiritual house as a priest to worship Jesus, because, it says so right in the text, you've been qualified, you've been made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's amazing. 
Meaning none of this hinges on your acceptability in and of yourself, but it hinges on the fact that you've been made acceptable through Jesus Christ. So celebrate the fact that you're under renovation by having a sacred effect and being indeed a sacred effect on the world around you while living a life of worship, which means in the Greek proskuneo, which means to come close and kiss, to be close enough to Jesus that you could kiss him, knowing that all of the aforementioned is built on Jesus as your foundation. How do we know? Look at verse 6. It tells us so. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That'll preach right there. You can count on Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The fourth thing that your life is meant to be is built on Jesus as cornerstone. Do you know what a cornerstone is? At the joining of two walls, the cornerstone is the one that joins the two walls. It lies right at the foundation of both walls. There is, in fact, a cornerstone in Zion. I've seen it myself. I was in an archaeological dig three years ago in Jerusalem. My guide was a friend of mine. We had access to a secret part of the dig underneath the Temple Mount. He let me jump down into the dig itself, where they had just uncovered the cornerstone of the temple, which would have stood in Jesus' day 20 feet above where he loved to preach in Jerusalem. There's a very good chance that he would have preached right underneath that same cornerstone. I jump down in the dirt. You can see that it is the first stone sitting atop the bedrock of Mount Moriah. And you bet your butt, I kneeled in the mud and I kissed the cornerstone and I did not speak again the rest of that day. Behold, I lay in Zion, the chief cornerstone. Woo-hoo! And you can count on him. Why? You see, at the root of every triumph lies the cornerstone. At the root of every defeat, every moment of suffering, lies the cornerstone. And all the weight and all the pressure lies on the cornerstone. So stop trying to carry it yourself. If all the weight of every good moment, all the weight of every bad moment, rests squarely on the cornerstone, that means it does not rest on your shoulders question for you is this, is Jesus truly the cornerstone of your life? If the answer is no, my question to you is this, what's stopping you? Your answer to that might be this, well, I guess I just have a hard time believing. In the few moments that remain, let me explore the nature of unbelief. Look at verses 7 through 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But for those who do not believe, literally in the original language here, unbelief means being stubborn. Did you know that? Might that help you this week? Unbelief is stubbornness. Stubbornness lies at the root of unbelief. It is unbelief. How does this manifest? I like the sound of this Jesus that you keep talking about, but I don't want to change. Can I come to Jesus and keep doing everything I've been doing? No. Why not? Then you have to get into a discussion of what it looks like to grow up into the image and likeness of Christ. Got to get into a discussion of what righteousness looks like and what holiness looks like. What the fruit of the Spirit looks like. 
what freedom looks like. You can't come to Jesus and keep doing the things that you've been doing. So the nature of repentance, this is why Christianity is so abhorrent to so many. I like the, I like the idea of being free, but can I keep smoking up? Nope. Why? Because that's not freedom. I like the idea of being fit, but I want to keep eating six hamburgers a week. Can't do it. How many people do you know who've come right to the edge of surrendering to Jesus and then have stopped at the last minute once they've counted the cost? I know many people like this. If you prefer stubbornness to submission, then to you, Jesus will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You just can't get around him. You'll see this. Everything's hunky-dory. You're like, yay! You know, someone's starting to, starting to come to church, starting to learn to worship Jesus. Maybe they're going to a small group, starting to make some changes in their life. And then it just, boop, trip, and they fall. And what's that stone? That stone of offense, if you want to be stubborn, is Jesus. You're always going to trip on Jesus. Why? Verse 8 tells us why. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, <clears throat> I'm only going to say two things about this. Okay, I don't have time to preach on predestination in its fullness. That would take a series of sermons. But I did read Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 this week. Those are the chapters that more than any other in the New Testament kind of deal with and explore the tension that lies at the root of the doctrine of predestination and the idea of adoption. So I'm not going to do that. If you don't even know what those things are or why it matters, fine, good. Don't worry, we'll talk about it when I preach you through the book of Romans someday. But two things on why people stumble on Jesus. First, they stumble because they don't want to obey the word. Now we already established last week that it does not just mean this collection of documents. Okay, The word does not just mean this. When Peter wrote this document... The collected document did not yet exist. If he meant a collection of documents, he would have meant the Tanakh. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. But I think he was speaking more broadly. He was speaking about the Word. They disobeyed the Word. They disobeyed the totality of what God says about Himself and what that means for them. Because let's be honest, it's much more difficult to submit to the totality of what God says about Himself. A document you can learn to know over time. The God of the universe, slightly more difficult. What does God essentially say about Himself? What does this document testify to? It basically says this. From God's perspective, I'm God, you're not, submit. You're like, yay, that's so happy and positive. Sorry, I've spent my whole life studying the document. That's basically what it says. I'm God, you're not, submit. If you're reading the Old Testament, there's like a postscript. The postscript in the Old Testament is, remember me. So I'm God, you're not, submit, and remember me. The postscript in the New Testament is, I'm God, you're not, submit, and Jesus is the way <laughs> to submit. But we don't want to hear that, do we? Because none of us want to submit. Either you're going to submit to God or you're going to pretend to be God and spend the rest of your life trying to make everyone else submit to you. 
See this pattern in the world around you? Do you see this pattern in your own life? Why does somebody cut you off in traffic? Because they want to make you submit to them. Why does somebody always try to win in negotiation? Because they're trying to make you submit to them. Why do some people use violence as leverage? Because they want to make you submit. Why do others use manipulation? Because they want to make you submit to them. Why? Because they see themselves as God. And if they're in the place of highest authority, then it just makes sense that everyone else should submit to them. But I need to remind you this morning that idolatry is not to be trifled with. God hates it. He hates idolatry. Hates it. There are events recorded in this document where he wipes out cities because of idolatry and the effects of idolatry. God will not have his creatures playing God. And you know why. You know how I know? You know why? Because none of you let your two-year-olds run the house. Imagine if your two-year-old, once they learn to speak, the first words out of their mouth were, thank you very much for raising me, Father. I will now proceed to take over the running of this household. <laughs> you going to listen to that kid or you going to whoop that kid? You going to whoop that kid. Right? There are a lot of parents these days who are listening to that kid. We were at the farmer's market yesterday. There were like six mothers like scurrying around after their two-year-old terrorist. I'm like, you need to control your young, man. I, go, I could go Old Testament on your child for you, man. I whooped that kid. Can you imagine the travesty of letting your two-year-old run your house? How ridiculous that would be? Be quiet. Sit down. When you're ready to move out, God bless you. See you later. Stop bothering me. Right? You let your two-year-old run your house. Okay, I'm emphasizing the point. Why? Because we are that much more ridiculous as we try to ascend God's throne so that we might rule and reign and receive the honor, the glory, the power, the praise, and the worship of everybody we encounter in the world around us. And it sounds ridiculous, but most of the people you know, that's exactly how they live. And left to our own devices, that's exactly how we want to live. Don't be a two-year-old terrorist. Second reason that people stumble on Jesus, I'm almost done, is this. It's because they were destined to. That's difficult. Are you saying that some people are predestined for hell and some are predestined for heaven? Like I said, I read all of Romans that deals with this topic. Predestination and adoption is one of the thorniest doctrines in all of Christendom. Here's how I deal with the concept of predestination. There are passages in the scriptures where it talks about God creating some vessels for wrath. And in that sequence, they're like, that's not fair. How could you choose some vessels to be destroyed? The writer says, who are you to tell the potter what he should do with the clay? So that passage exists. You're like, oh boy. And then a passage exists later in this book where we see that it's God's will that none should perish. We see some sequences in the scriptures where Jesus' atonement on the cross is for the sins of the world, which seems to imply for everyone. And then there are other passages where it says that you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and only then will you be saved. You're like, it's one or the other. Like, if the atonement was once for all, what does my confession have to do with it at all? 
So we're not Talmudic scholars, right? We're not Jewish rabbis. We're not going to spend centuries trying to weigh the one against the other. As Christians, we see all of Scripture and we interpret all of Scripture through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, we keep it simple. We keep it about Jesus. Okay, we say Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, became a man, suffered and died on the cross in our place for our sins, rose again for our salvation, Period. He ascended to the Father's right hand. He is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom, which will have no end, a kingdom in which we have a place. That's it. We say God knows them that are his. It's true. When it comes to predestination, we know a few things for sure. We know that we're not God. Can we agree on that? Okay, so if we're not God, it stands to reason that we don't know them that are his, which means our only job is to preach the gospel To everyone. Because we don't know who's in and who's out. So we preach the gospel to every creature. In fact, the scriptures tell us to preach the gospel to every creature. So that's what we do. We proclaim the good news about Jesus to everybody we can. Because we don't know who's elect and who's not. And because Jesus and no other name is the hinge. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess, which means to gloriously to happily acclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's what we do. We don't worry about the details of how predestination and adoption work, because we're not God. We leave that to Him, and we proclaim the good news about Jesus, because Jesus is the hinge. This is illustrated beautifully in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, where as the story ends, all the creatures from Narnia have to come face to face with Aslan. With a thrill of wonder, and there was some terror in it too, they all suddenly realized what was happening. The spreading blackness was not a cloud at all, it was simply emptiness. The black part of the sky was the part in which there were no stars left. All the stars were falling. Aslan had called them home. The last few seconds before the reign of stars had quite ended were very exciting. Stars began falling all around them. But stars in that world are not the great flaming globes they are in ours. They are people. Edmund and Lucy had met one once. So now they found showers of glittering people, all with long hair like burning silver and spears like white hot metal, rushing down to them out of the black air, swifter than falling stones. They made a hissing noise as they landed and burnt the grass, and all these stars glided past them and stood somewhere behind a little to the right. This was a great advantage because otherwise, now that there were no stars in the sky, everything would have been completely dark and you could have seen nothing. As it was, the crowd of stars behind them cast a fierce white light over their shoulders. They could see mile upon mile of Narnian woods spread out before them, looking as if they were floodlit. Every bush and almost every blade of grass had its black shadow behind it. The edge of every leaf stood out so sharp, you'd think you could cut your finger on it. On the grass below them lay their own shadows, but the great thing was Aslan's shadow. It streamed away to their left, enormous and very terrible. And all this was under a sky that would now be starless forever. The light from behind them and a little to their right was so strong that it lit up even the slopes of the northern moors. Something was moving there. Enormous animals were crawling and sliding down into Narnia, great dragons and giant lizards and featherless birds with wings like bats' wings. They disappeared into the woods, and for a few moments there was silence. Then there came, at first from very far off, sounds of wailing, and then from every direction a rustling and a pattering and a sound of wings. 
It came nearer and nearer. Soon one could distinguish the scamper of little feet from the padding of big paws and the clack, clack, clack of little light hoofs from the thunder of great ones. And then one could see thousands of pairs of eyes gleaming. And at last, out of the shadow of the trees, racing up the hill for dear life, by thousands and by millions came all kinds of creatures, talking beasts, dwarfs, satyrs, fawns, giants, calamines, men from Arkenland, monopods, and strange, unearthly things from the remote islands or the unknown western lands. And all these ran up to the doorway where Aslan stood. This part of the adventure was the only one which seemed rather like a dream at the time and rather hard to remember properly afterwards, especially one couldn't say how long it had taken. Sometimes it seemed to have lasted only a few minutes, but others it felt as if it might have gone on for years, obviously unless either the door had grown very much larger or the creatures had suddenly grown as small as gnats. A crowd like that could never have tried to get through it, but one thought about that not at all at the time. The creatures came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter as they drew nearer and nearer to the standing stars. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or another of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred, except that on the faces of the talking beasts, the fear and the hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You could see that they suddenly ceased to be talking beasts. They were just ordinary animals. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, his left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow, which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But the others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him though some of them were very frightened at the time. And all these came in at the door, in on Aslan's right. There were some strange specimens among them. Eustace even recognized one of those very dwarfs who had helped to shoot the horses. But he had no time to wonder about that sort of thing, and anyway, it was no business of his. For a great joy put everything else out of his head. Among the happy creatures who now came crowding round Tyrion and his friends were all those they had thought dead. There was Runewit the centaur, and Jewel the unicorn, and the good boar, and the good bear, and Farsight the eagle, and the deer dogs, and the horses, and Pog and the dwarf, and further up and higher in, cried Runewit, and thundered away in a gallop to the west. And though they did not understand him, the words somehow set them tingling all over. The boar grunted at them cheerfully. The bear was just about to mutter that he still didn't understand when he caught sight of the fruit trees behind him. He waddled to those trees as fast as he could, and there no doubt found something he understood very well. But the dogs remained wagging their tails, and Poggin remained shaking hands with everyone and grinning all over his honest face. And Jewel leaned his snowy white head over the king's shoulder, and the king whispered in Jewel's ear. Then everyone turned his attention again to what could be seen through the doorway. I mean, I'd read you the whole ending if I had time. Jesus is the hinge. Ultimately, you have to face Jesus. And friends, if you've ever been even slightly worried that you've been predestined for wrath, that's a very good sign that you haven't been. And worship team, I'm done. You can join me on stage. Ever heard somebody say this? Jesus? I don't care about Jesus. Show me how to get more money, more power, more influence, more fame. Show me how to get what I want. Jesus? Don't bother me about Jesus. You met people like that? Have you heard that from people? How about this kind of person? Jesus? That sounds beautiful. I would like to know more. Tell me more about this Jesus. 
If at the name of Jesus, even the slightest sign of love or joy shows up in your heart, then the following is probably true of you. Look at verses 9-10. through 10. But you are a chosen race. Receive it. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The fifth thing your life is meant to be, and this could be five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Your life is meant to be chosen, royal, holy, owned by God, so that you can be His messenger. Look at verse 9. You're a chosen race. Friends, God chose you. Therefore, you never need to allow yourself to feel rejected ever again. Because God chose you. Let that be enough for you this week. God Himself chose you. You're meant to be a royal priest. Verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. You are a sacred effect rooted in God's kingness. Okay, remember that He's a king. And that the sacred effect that you are in the world around you is not rooted in your goodness, it's rooted in His kingness. And His kingness is pretty kingly, and it's more than enough to deal with all of your shortcomings. So go out there and boldly be the sacred effect this week that He has made you to be because it's rooted in His kingness. And furthermore, you're a holy nation. What does that mean? You're a gathered, unified, purposeful people because of Jesus. Not because we always get along. Not because we agree on every jot and tittle. Why are we a holy nation? Because Jesus has unified us, He's gathered us, and He has sent us on a purposeful mission. In fact, you belong to Him. You're His own possession. Your family may be dysfunctional. You may have been rejected time and time again in your life, but you belong to God Himself. As I said last week, He doesn't lose anything. You're His own possession. That kind of life, a life characterized by those things, by chosenness, by priestliness, by being a holy nation, by knowing that you belong to God, that kind of life leads to a life that proclaims the excellencies, literally the valors of Him who brought you from darkness to light, who moved you from not belonging to belonging, who took you from being subject to God's wrath because of your sinfulness, to having been shown mercy, which means to have been given favor that you don't deserve. Living a life as it was meant to be means living a life where you, my friend, are moving from being a rolling stone to a living stone. 